Well, I'm excited. We're going to finish up our series through 1 Corinthians 12 today. And I want to just start by reading the passage that we'll walk through. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you'll just be able to listen along. And also, if you have a bulletin insert, you can look along there. Um, but we're finishing up 1 Corinthians 12. So I'm going to start reading in verse 21 and read until verse 31 till the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. I'm just going to take a moment and pray for us before we delve into this together. Father, thank you so much that we can sing the praise of the God who created the mountains and the skies and the oceans and that you're also the God who's created each one of us. You're the God who sent your one and only son to rescue all of us. Father, we're, we're here because we love you, but we're, we're here, first of all, because you've loved us. You are our lifeblood. We pray that you lead us through this time. Father, I pray that you lead us out of any complacency or any casual approach that we feel towards your word and towards your people and towards your mission. I pray that you lead me and all the words that I say that they would be right and that they would be on target and that they would be helpful and true. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, just to let you know a little bit of kind of what goes on behind the scenes sometimes. So I, I get to plan out um, kind of the sermon series and the different stuff that we do from up front and we do that in advance. Um, and I also get to be involved in helping to schedule who speaks on which day. So several months ago, I was talking with Gary and, and we knew we were going to do this series four weeks through 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and I said, Gary, I'd love for you to do the third week of this series, um, which was last week. And he said, that's great. I'm open on that day. And I said, what's the title of the sermon for that week? And I said, the title for the sermon of that week is Inferior. <laughs> and he said, okay, I won't take that personally. Uh, but when you come back to teach the fourth week, what's the title of that week? And I said, the title of that week is Superior. <laughs> so... <laughs> There are some advantages to being the one who plans these things. 
But the reason we titled these last two weeks that obviously has nothing to do with me and Gary, it, it has to do with the fact that Paul is addressing two concerns that he sees might happen in this broader idea where he gives this illustration that the church, and, and please listen, every time I say the, the, the word church, try not to think of a building or, or even just an organization. Try to think of the church is the people of God. The church is the believers in Jesus Christ. It says the church is like a body. And so there's one body, but there's many parts. And he plays out this illustration. And Paul anticipates that there's going to be some people that they see their part in the body as an inferior part. That they're going to basically instinctively ask the question, am I needed at all? And he says, there's some others of you. And usually because your part is more upfront and noticeable, you're going to have a tendency to feel like you're superior. You're going to have a tendency not to ask the question, am I needed? But to ask the question, do I need anyone else? And Paul is going to bring rebuke and perspective to both those that wrestle with self-doubt and also those that wrestle with self-sufficiency. Because he tells us in chapter 12, he says, all right, here's the deal. Nobody is inadequate and nobody is independent. Instead of being inadequate or independent, what he says we are is we're interdependent. We all need each other just as a human body. All the parts need each other. In the body of Christ, we all need each other. And this last passage, what Paul is going to lay out for us is that the interdependence of God's people shatters both self-sufficiency and self-doubt. So no doubt there's some of you in here today that you come in with a pretty good dose of self-sufficiency. You've been affirmed in your gifts. People talk about how important you are. You lead a small group or you teach the kids and you have that constant reminder, if I didn't show up, something wouldn't happen. This passage is going to shatter any self-sufficiency that might creep in, that might think, make you think you're more important than you are. But this passage is also going to shatter any self-doubt that we have. And maybe even self-doubt isn't the right term. I know I'm the one who put it up there, but it may not be quite right because the question is not whether or not we doubt ourselves. The question is whether or not we doubt God. Spiritual gifts aren't about ourselves. They're about believing that God has done a work in us through the Holy Spirit and that that work is going to influence his people and his mission. So as we walk through this passage, it kind of comes out in two parts. In the first half of it, what Paul basically says is there's something different about us that makes us interdependent. And then in the second half, he says, and there's something the same about all of us that makes us interdependent. But he zeroes in on this whole idea that we truly do need each other. And before walking through these two parts, I just, it, it would be really easy. And, and I wouldn't blame you if there's many of you that, that come into this and say, all right, um, especially if you've been here for the other parts of the series that you say, all right, I get it. Um, you got to do a series like this sometimes at a church because you want people to serve and we have needs in the children's ministry. And it would be good if everybody pitched in. And so you might be looking at this fourth week saying, all right, it's the poll to make sure everybody pitches in and does their part. And and that's not wildly untrue. It's like, all right, that there is some of that, that we want everybody to do their part. But the stakes are much higher than just everybody doing their part. We are not just an organization that's looking to get a bunch of holes filled. We are the body of Christ. We have a divine mission. We are the light of Jesus in this world right now. 
if the body of Christ is limping along, crippled, because the people aren't using their gifts, the light of Jesus is going to be dimmed in this world. And I hope you understand, I'm not saying this in some kind of self-exalting way. We are the only shot for the world to see Jesus. And I'm not just saying we, Life Bible Fellowship Church, we believers are the only way for people to see Jesus. If we are limping along, the mission of Jesus is hampered. But man, if we get this right, just imagine what things would be like. Imagine what would happen with our kids and with the next generation seeing the gospel played out. Imagine how many more go teams we would send out to spread the message. Imagine the impact in our community. Imagine the impact in our small groups. We have not yet scratched the surface of what is possible if we truly function as the body of Christ. The stakes are high as we go into this. And Paul knows that. And that's why he's so emphasizing our interdependence. As I said, there's kind of two parts that this breaks into. And the first part is in verses 21 through 26. What Paul says is we are interdependent. And one of the reasons why we're interdependent is because our gifts are different. If God had gifted us all in the exact same way, probably some of us would be redundant. It would be easy to say, well, we don't need that person. We've got 17 other people who do just what they do. Our gifts are different and that makes us need one another. So Paul starts off by reestablishing this whole body illustration. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Um, And it's not hard to see why Paul would emphasize the eyes and the head as parts of the body that might feel superior. These are pretty important parts of the body and nobody doubts that they're important parts of the body. So just think about the eye for a moment. The eye is pretty important, right? I don't know. I don't know if it's the gray. I don't know if, if a time change happened that I didn't know about. But I'd love for you all to wake up a little bit more than you are right now. I'm just saying. The, the, eyes, the eyes are really important, right? Oh, I love it. All right. The eyes, no, nobody doubts that the eyes are really important. That, that's why it's so tragic when people begin to lose their eyesight. Um, the eyes are really important. The eyes are the only way that we can see. So the eye could look around at the rest of the body because the eye is the eye. The eye can look around and, uh, and can say, well, you know, if, if you needed to touch something, you could use the foot or the knee or the elbow or the hand, the fingers. You can use a lot of things if you need to touch something. But there's only one part of the body that lets you look. The eye is pretty important. The eye can look all around as long as the neck turns the head for the eye to do that. Otherwise, the eye is just looking in one direction. Of course, the eye isn't looking at anything at all if the eyelids don't open so that the eye can see. Just imagine as significant as the eye is, how utterly dependent the eye is on the rest of the body to do anything meaningful. Imagine how sad it would be if you could see everything that you get to see, but you weren't able to speak about it. You weren't able to talk to friends about the beautiful sunset that you saw or a great thing and a great story that happened to you. Uh, Imagine just for a moment what it would have been like. In fact, you probably don't have to imagine. Probably when when you showed up here to the church services today, on your way in or outside, kind of uh, in the outside lobby, you saw somebody that you were excited to see. Your eyes saw somebody and you were like, oh, I'm so glad to see them. And then your legs walked you over to that person 
and your arm outstretched your hand to that person or you gave them a hug, your whole body fulfilled what your eyes wanted to do to go and greet this person that you saw. The eye is clearly an important part of the body, but the eye needs every other part of the body to do what it's meant to do. And Paul wants us to recognize that out front. There's going to be parts of the body of Christ that are obviously important. We get to see them do their thing. And then there's other parts of the body that, as Paul is about to say, are more in the background and it could be easy for us to miss their significance. So in verse 22, he says, on the contrary, on the contrary, from thinking that we don't need one another, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And almost certainly what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about the internal parts of the body. So we, we compliment each other on our eyes or on our face or, you know, on different parts of the body. Nobody's ever like, nice small intestine. <laughs> there are hidden parts of the body that don't get the accolades. And I love that he even says here, um, he doesn't say that there are some parts of the body that are weaker. What does he say? They seem to be weaker. Paul is not doing some kind of pat you on the head, patronizing idea. Yeah, I know nobody sees the part that you play, but really, even though you're weaker, we still want you around. He's saying the only reason we would refer to these parts of the body as weaker is because we have a misperception that they're weaker. They're weaker because they're behind the scenes. But again, just think of the internal parts of the body. They are pretty important. You would much rather puncture your finger than puncture a lung. It would be really sad if you had to go on living without one of your toes. But it would be a whole lot harder to go on living without your heart. We need the unseen parts of the body. And so he says, all right, there are parts that don't get the accolades. Just like in the body of Christ, there are the really obvious parts using their gifts. I get to get up here on Sundays. Gary gets up here, the, the worship team, the different small group leaders and Sunday school leaders. There are upfront parts of the body that nobody really doubts that they have a contribution to make. But there are hidden parts of the body that do things that are just important. He goes on, he uses one last kind of way of talking about this in verse 23. He says, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. So, so last part first, presentable parts, he's saying, all right, the parts that we put forward, the parts that, that we sort of emphasize of our human body, nobody needs to tell us that those parts are important. Same with the body of Christ. The people that we put up front, they, they don't need a lot of accolades. I don't need, a lot of, I don't need all, you all to be like, you really play a role, Dan. I'm like, yeah, I know. I, thankfully, you know, I, I, I get feedback. It, it's good. I don't need that affirmation. It's the parts of the body that are on the background that we often need to talk about this with. Now, I, I don't want to delve too deep into this, but when he talks about the unpresentable parts, almost certainly he's talking about what you think he's talking about. He's talking about the parts of the body that we cover with swimsuits. And, uh, you know, I'm a man, so I'll just speak from this from the man's standpoint. But, you know, when you play sports as a man, there's different equipment for every sport that you play. In football, there's lots of pads. In soccer, there's the shin guards. You know, in baseball, you have the helmet. In basketball, you, you don't really have that much. But whatever sport you play, there's one piece of equipment that goes along with it. I don't even need to say it. We all know what we're talking about here. There are parts of the body that we're even a little bit embarrassed about. We're, we're kind of delicate about them. 
but we still recognize just how important they are. Paul's using three different words to describe that there are parts of the body that we don't recognize necessarily as important. We don't put out front, and yet we would never doubt their significance when we think of it. And just as it would be tragic for you to only have the eye seen without all the other parts of the body making things work in light of what the eye sees, it would be tragic for us only to have the upfront obvious parts of the body of Christ without all the internal parts working that often people don't even know are going on. You know, three weeks ago when we started this series, I spent a little bit of time talking about the gift of mercy, which to me, it's an amazing gift that the gift of mercy almost certainly has to do with the idea that there are people who either because of a physical sickness or because of some kind of grief that they're going through in their life, or just a really hard time, that there are people in the body of Christ who come and show them mercy, do practical things for them, sit with them, cry with them, comfort them. It's an amazing gift. To me, it's an amazing gift because it's not one that I have. And when I watch people play this out in a natural way, it's, it's a gift to the church of Jesus. What would the church be like without men and women showing mercy? And one of the reasons why that's so personal to me is because that's part of my story. And some of you know at least parts of this, but when I was about nine years old, my father had some, something, I, I hate that I can't describe what happened because the doctors don't know what happened, but something happened to him and instantly, just in the matter of an hour, he was paralyzed from the neck down and was rushed to the hospital, was in, was in hospitals for about a year. Um, at the beginning, you know, he couldn't talk. He was winking and blinking on a chart to speak to us. Um, to, just so that all you know, if, if you're trying to figure this out, he's still living today. He's in a wheelchair. He has some use of, of the left side of his body so that he can act, uh, operate the wheelchair. Um, but obviously, that, that was a devastating time for our family, not knowing if my dad was going to live, not knowing what this meant for everybody in light of all of this. And those devastating times are times where it's very easy for us all to look at God and say, God, why are you doing this? God, if you're all powerful, why this? Why are we in peril? If you really love us, why would you have this happen to us? And the thing is, while I prayed a lot during that time and I cried out to God a lot, mostly just spare my dad, let him live through this. Um, I didn't have a lot of time that I was angry with God. And I think I didn't, the reason why I didn't have a lot of time that I was angry with God is because I got to witness our church body come around us in power. It was amazing. We had meals every single night. And not just meals, but meals with desserts, <laughs> which we didn't normally get except like once a week. So it's like, well, it's sad that dad's in the hospital, but this is kind of nice that we get all this extra dessert. We had people coming and visiting us. We had our pastor sat down with, with me and my sister to talk through suffering and to walk us through what, how we were to process this as far as God. I remember at least one time um, that a, a group of people, probably about 50 people from the church came to the hospital to pray and worship together and so that my dad could be there with it. People were visiting. They were visiting us and visiting my dad. I saw the gift of mercy in action. And let me tell you, because of my job, I think preaching sermons is pretty important. But there's no number of sermons that can replace that. There's no amount of Sunday school lessons or small group meetings that can replace the gift of mercy being played out in the church setting. 
How sad would it be to have the eye without the mouth or the hands or the feet? How sad would it be to have the body of Christ with sermons and Sunday school leaders without mercy and encouragement and helps being played out behind the scenes? And again, and it, um, I'm not going to give specifics about it here at the church because the people with the gift of mercy, it's like their worst nightmare to be mentioned from up front. But this is played out in our church. People sitting with others in the hospital, visiting people that are shut in because of their, their health problems, going and bringing meals to people who have just had babies or are going through chronic diseases. This is happening all the time. And you don't know about it because it's not as public. Everybody knows when I preached a sermon. Everybody knows when Andy's led a song. People don't know when people deliver these meals, unless you're like, all right, Instagram, here I am delivering a meal to my friend. Um, <laughs> Which, by the way, if you do that, you already got your reward. You have no reward in heaven. Just, just remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Not a major point, but I'm just saying. Paul brings all this together and he says, we are interdependent. We need each other. And it's not bad that we're different. It's good that we're different. In fact, look at what he says in the second half of verse 24. He says, God put the body together. This isn't a mistake. God put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. And what he seems to just be saying here is the parts that we sometimes think aren't as important, God gives special honor to those. We are all needed. And then he gives the big so that. He did this so that there should be no division in the body, but that all its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored... Every part rejoices with it. Have you ever leaned against something, put your hand on it, and suddenly realized that the thing you leaned against is really, really hot? When that happens, what do you do? You know, just instantly take it off. But just imagine for a second, you were leaning against something that was really hot, and the eyes looked over and saw it and said, that's the hand's problem. That would never happen because you are one body. The whole body springs into action to rescue that hand. Paul says we have equal concern for one another. If one part is suffering, we're all suffering. And there are people in our church that are suffering. There are people who are suffering because of diseases. And people who are suffering because of trauma in their relationships and trying to work things through. There are people suffering because of grief over losing people that they loved. And one of the powerful things that happens is that we don't look at the people who are suffering and say, well, that's their problem. Their suffering is our suffering. The suffering of brothers and sisters in Christ and all around the world in Sudan or in North Korea or in all the different spots where it's really difficult to be a Christian, that is not their suffering. That is our suffering. But here's also the really good news about this. This means that, that the defeats and the sadness of the church of Jesus Christ belongs to all of us, but it also means that the victories of the church of Jesus Christ belong to all of us. It's not, Troy just talked about this with Go Team Thailand. It is not simply that 12 people went to Thailand. You know who went to Thailand? We went to Thailand. We're part of the body of Christ. What they did over there in serving the people in profound ways, that's what we did. We are in on that. Their victory and the things that God did, that is our victory. We rejoice in it because we are all one body, even though there were 12 people who played the part of going on that trip. We're one body. We're all different, but that difference makes us interdependent. 
But Paul says it's, it's not only what we don't share that makes us interdependent, it's what we do share that makes us interdependent. And he says there's something, even with all of our different gifts that we share. And the thing that we share is our mission. We share the fact that we're different parts all coming to one body, but there's a purpose for all of this. There's a reason why God has set things up in this way. And verse 27, th this could so easily be a flyover verse, but we're not going to treat it that way. He says, now you're a part of the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And we can say, all right, good. He's just, he's recapping, kind of resetting. This is the way things are set up. He's, he's reminding us, let's move on. But I want to say, let's not move on too quickly. Because what Paul says here is something that should stagger us and bring us to rejoice. You are part of the body of Christ. And each of you is a part of it. Now, I'll admit that this may be partly because when I was in junior high and, and we used to play basketball during lunch, I was normally the last one picked. And so this may partly play into the idea that if I heard the words, you're on the team, that was pretty great words to hear. It's like, thank God, because if there were an odd number of kids, I might not be on any team. The idea of God saying to you, you're on the team. You're part of the body. You're brought into the body, body of Christ. This is not something you were born with. He is not simply saying, hey, you were born with unique talents. And, and that's true. And that's wonderful. But he's not simply saying you were born with a unique contribution to the world. He's saying something happened to bring you in to the body of Christ. God had to intervene to make this happen. Because even though in the, in the United States these days, we, we tend to think of ourselves as just people that, yeah, we have some flaws and we have some quirks, but, but really we're all trying to do the right thing. When we read the pages of scripture, that's not the description that we find of ourselves at all. Jesus didn't say, I've come to seek and save the people who have made some errors of judgment. He said, I've come to seek and save the lost. He said, I've come to a world that is condemned. The apostle Peter in the book of 1 Peter talks about Jesus dying and he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. In Romans 5, Paul not only calls us sinners and ungodly and helpless, he calls us enemies of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Take this in for a moment. Don't pass over the fact that Paul is saying, you're in the body of Christ because remember what it took to get you there. And it's possible that there's some of us in this room that we grew up and, and, and the way that we grew up, we had Christian parents and so we, we came to Christ early and so maybe we don't have this dramatic story of where we were before we came to Christ. But I want you just to think of a powerful story in scripture. There's a story in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus is on the cross and he's not the only one being crucified. There's a thief next to him. In fact, there's a thief on either side being crucified with him. And one of the thieves, as he's getting ready to die, turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, let me ask you a question. At this point, how useful is this dying thief to Jesus? This guy has nothing to offer. He's lived an immoral life that's led him to a point of condemnation and public death. He is dying. He can't bargain with Jesus here. He can't say, oh, if you save me, I'm going to tell everybody about this. No, you're not. You're about to die. He has nothing to offer Jesus. 
And yet Jesus snatches him. Just again, think about this story. Hell is waiting for a new member. And Jesus snatches him up and saves him. And it's easy for us to say, that's what he did with the thief. But you know what? That's what he did with you. Hell was waiting for a new member. You were condemned. You were lost. You were rebellious. You were a sinner. You were ungodly. And Jesus snatched you from the fire. And now you're part of the body of Christ. Now you're welcomed into the family. Now you're forgiven of everything. Now you're part of the team. You have a mission because you were snatched out of the darkness and brought into the family. And therefore, listen, this is another easy thing to miss. Verse 28, he says, and God is placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers. You might be like, why is he ranking them all of a sudden? I thought all parts were equal. Why is he ranking them? I I think the only reason he's saying this is just because he's talking about the order in which the gospel has spread out. The first thing that happened was that the apostles, the people who followed Jesus and, and were witnesses to his resurrection, they proclaimed the message. And then after that, there were a bunch of prophets that sprouted up and they started continuing the message and spreading it out. And then teachers and pastors started showing up in all kinds of different churches to spread it out. So he's not saying one is better than the other. He's just saying this is sort of the order that this has happened with the church. And then he says, and then miracles and gifts of healing and helping and guidance and different kinds of tongues, which is not the whole list. It's just a bunch of gifts. But don't miss the very first thing that he said. He says, and God has placed in the church all of these gifts. The whole point of this, and this is our misunderstanding when we think of spiritual gifts. We say, God's given you a gift. In fact, we called this series, You Have a Gift. You can say, I have a gift. God gave me a gift. I'm going to take that gift and I'm going to put it up on my shelf because I have a gift from God. And what the Holy Spirit says is, no, you were given a gift. And God gave it specifically to you and he wrapped it all up and he made it look nice. And now you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to take that gift to the church because it belongs to them. Your gift is not your gift. Your gift is the church's gift. He didn't just make a bunch of people apostles. He gave the apostles to the church. Back in verse seven, the apostle Paul said, the manifestation of the spirit has been given to each For the common good. If right now you are not using your spiritual gift to serve the people of God, you are robbing them of something that belongs to them. Your gift is not your gift. Your gift is the church's gift. And in verses 29 and 30, Paul just makes a bunch of rhetorical questions to make the point that we're all different. He says, not everybody's an apostle. All aren't apostles. All of us aren't prophets. He names off a bunch of the gifts just to make the point. Nobody has all the gifts and there's no gift that everybody has. We are all different, but we all have the same mission. Our gifts were given to the church. We were given as members of the church to the church so that we could shine the light of Jesus to all around us so that we could have such profound love for one another that people see that Jesus has made a profound difference in our lives. And all this seems to make sense. We're kind of following. We're like, all right, Paul, I see we're all different. And yet we all have the same purpose. And so that's why we're a body and many parts where we're following, we can track with them. And then Paul ends this chapter in a really weird way. So let me put up verse 31 because there's several odd parts about what he says. Verse 31, he says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, for a couple of reasons, this seems to undercut almost everything Paul has just said. First of all, because he gives a command. 
now eagerly desire the gifts. Now, the problem here is that it seems like what Paul has said the entire time is you have a gift, not go get the gifts. This isn't Pokemon Go where you're supposed to collect them all. The, the whole idea is you have a gift. The Holy Spirit gave you a gift. And suddenly he's saying, desire the gifts. But not only is he saying desire the gifts, what kinds of gifts is he telling us to desire? The greater gifts. Why does he say the greater gifts? He just spent all this time saying no gift is greater than the other. Paul throws a major wrench into things right at the end. So, so let's try to figure this out to figure out what he's saying here. Now, first of all, there's some people, in, and, and the Greek, in the Greek, this is possible. Some people say this is mistranslated, and what it should actually say is, now you, Corinthians, are eagerly desiring. Instead of a command, just a statement of fact of what they're doing. He's saying, you're desiring the greater gifts, the more impressive gifts. And he's saying it as a point of rebuke. I, I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's not impossible that that's what's going on, but it's probably not what's going on. And the reason it's probably not is because Paul says almost the same thing in chapter 14, verse 1. If you have an open Bible, you can just look over. Chapter 14, verse 1 of the same letter, Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, here's where we get a clue. And if you were to read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, here's basically what it's about. The Corinthians loved one of the gifts. There was one of the gifts that they thought was not only the greater gift, but the greatest gift. And that was speaking in tongues. And some of you are very familiar with this. Some of you might scratch your heads at this. But the idea with speaking in tongues is that somebody led by the Holy Spirit speaks praise to God in a language that they were never taught. And you can understand why that's pretty impressive. That's pretty amazing. No wonder all of the Corinthians wanted to be able to do this. And when they come together for a church service, they're tripping over each other, trying to get to the front for their turn to speak in tongues. And Paul says, you know what? Speaking in tongues does not help the church unless somebody interprets what's going on. So the idea is that somebody would speak in a language that they'd never been taught and somebody else who presumably had not been taught that language either stands up and the Holy Spirit inspires them to be able to say what it means. And so in chapter 14, Paul says, you know, you're all tripping over each other to do this impressive thing of speaking in tongues. I would rather have you prophesy. I'd rather have everybody prophesy. And he's not simply saying, I want everybody predicting the future because with prophecy, the biggest part of it is not predicting the future. The biggest part of it is boldly speaking the message of God to God's people. And that doesn't just mean reading the Bible or giving a sermon. That means coming to God's people and saying, I believe this is what God is telling us we need to do. I believe this is what God is telling us we need to think. I believe God is telling us this is what we need to remember. And Paul is saying, well, that's better because everybody understands it. Now, here's where this draws back to what he's saying here in verse 31. When Paul says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, I'm pretty certain all he is saying is, make your focus to benefit the church. Go after whatever gift or whatever use of your gift will most benefit the body of Christ. Because it's not about you getting noticed. It's about the church being built up. That's the mission. Then he ends the chapter by saying, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. But you might think, well, that's a weird ending. That doesn't sound like an ending. That sounds like a transition. And if you're thinking that, you'd be right. There's a transition. 
And if you study 1 Corinthians enough, what you discover is that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 comes right before 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not making it up. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is sometimes called the love chapter. Let me just read the first three verses of chapter 13 and hear these in light of all that we've just talked about. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul reminds us here, the mission is not that you get noticed for using your gifts. The mission is that you are so devoted in love to God and in love to his people that you are using yourself up for God's purposes. You are using yourself up so that God's people are served and so that the light of Jesus shines to the world around us. The most excellent way that he's talking about is not some hidden gift. The most excellent way that he's talking about is using our gifts in a spirit of love where we're much more concerned about other people benefiting than about us getting accolades. Now, this is the final week of this series, and so let me just ask a question. Um, and, and some of you know, or, or hopefully all of you know, next Sunday evening we're having an event just to build off of what we've done in these four weeks. We're going to walk through the different spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about how they play out in the body of Christ. Hopefully we're, we're going to help many of you discover what your gift may be. But the more important question even then the question, what is your gift, is the question, how are you using your gifts for the common good? And, and let me just get real straightforward with this. Um, the body of Christ is often left to limp along. And the reason the body of Christ is left to limp along is not because there's people going through such hardship that they're unable to use their spiritual gifts. It's because there are many people who are a part of the body of Christ who can't be bothered to give their gifts to the church. And I just want to ask you very straightforwardly, are you robbing the body of Christ of gifts that belong to them? Are you right now too busy with other missions in your life, with the missions of making money, with the missions of doing different activities with your family, with the missions of being distracted with things that may all be fine, but the Holy Spirit didn't give you a gift so that Little League would benefit or so that your workplace would benefit or, or even so that, so that some venture that, that you're doing financially would benefit. All those things may be fine, but you were given a spiritual gift so that the people of God and the mission of God would be furthered. If you are choosing right now to stay on the sidelines and saying, I'm just not going to be bothered to figure this out, you are robbing the body of Christ and you are veiling the light that Jesus means to shine through us. The stakes are high, brothers and sisters. We got to figure this out. We got to move on this. God is doing profound things through us right now. We have not yet scratched the surface of what would be possible if we really took him up on all that he has promised. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you so much. 
that you've welcomed us into your family. You didn't have to do that and you had lots of reasons to simply discard us. Thank you for sending Jesus for us. Thank you that you welcomed us, that you snatched us from judgment, that you snatched us from hell to forgive us. And thank you that you've shown up in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Father, we wanna see the light of Jesus shine. We wanna see our neighbors coming to faith in Jesus. We wanna see the nations have the light of Jesus. We wanna see members of this church experience the care and the growth that you desire for them so much. Father, I pray that you move in us. I pray that you move in us with your comfort. But Father, I also pray that you unsettle anyone here who's complacent and willing to just coast through. Father, light a fire under us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Shine your light through this church body. And may we be a body that functions fully because of how you've moved in us and because of how we've responded. We pray in the name of our Savior and our head. Jesus Christ. Amen.